Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 410. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. On this week's Drabblecast, the voices inside your head, a subject we, of course, in the podcasting world love to go on about, considering that's pretty much all we are to you. Wouldn't it be fun if you looked down at your phone or podcast player right now and noticed that you hadn't actually ever pushed the play button yet? You're listening to NPR. This I'm is Diane Amada. Support for NPR comes ended all. Okay, so fun might not be the best word for voices in your head. Whatever that word is, 10 bucks says it precedes the words early onset. And you might as well appreciate this episode while it's around for free. Anyways, let's get started with our 100 word story this week. One second, let me just do yourself a quick favor and look down at your podcast app real quick just to just make sure you're actually listening. You know, just want to make sure that you're, you know, tuned in and not things considered. The code is 905. includes I am Lakshmi Singh. I am Lakshmi Singh. I am Lakshmi We worked really hard on this episode. Oh, and there's the theme music and everything, so... Trouble! Drabbles are stories, exactly 100 words, no more, no less. And we like to warm things up here on the show with these fun little story appetizers. And we accept submissions each week from our audience through our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the Drabble section. Give it a shot. Our 100 word story this week is called Voices, and it comes to us from listener Sunner. Here goes. Uh, where am I? Why is it so dark? I can't feel anything, a panicked voice yelled. The grubby boy on his knees, washing the floorboards of the laboratory, winced at the volume, but the elderly scientist, intent on the boiling flask, gave no indication he heard. Another voice yelled, Shut up, you fool! You'll give us all headaches. There were giggles and moans from numerous voices. The boy looked around but could see no one else. And then he looked up. Up to the high, dusty shelves where a new jar had been added to the row of brains. That leads us into this week's story, Go Between by China Mieville. China's a weird fiction writer living and working in London. He's a three-time winner of the prestigious Arthur C. Clarke Award and also has a Hugo under his belt and was shortlisted for the Nebula Award. His novel, The City and the City, an existential thriller, was published in 2009 to dazzling critical acclaim and drew comparison with the works of Kafka, Orwell, and Philip K. Dick from The Guardian and Time Magazine. Our story is read to you by voice actor, radio producer, and voice of underwriting at NPR, Chioke Iansen. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Babbel, a language app. Learn to confidently speak a new language with This guy gets it. Choke's a busy guy. In addition to being a big fan of the Travelcast, he's also assistant professor of African American Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University, where he teaches his students how to walk the line between faith and suspicion through criticism. A philosopher by training, he's also a rider of fast motorcycles, or as pansy-ass wimps such as myself like to say, survivor of fast motorcycles. Give me more walls, man. Give me more wheels and walls. And that crazy, crazy little contraption there you got. Choke was recently a guest judge on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is one of my favorite shows ever. Peter Siegel's my absolute idol, and also just happens to be the name of my favorite body pillow. Before I you know, realized that naming pillows was silly, and bodies don't really care one way or another. Anyways, it's a fun listen. I'll link to Choke's episode of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me in our show notes. Check it out. So anyways, without further ado, we bring you Go Between by China Mieville. Something was in the bread. Morley was cutting, and on the fourth strike of the knife, the metal broke. Behind him, his friends talked over their food. Morley pried the dough apart and touched something smooth. He had marked it with a scratch. Morley could see the thing's color, a drab charcoal. It had been a long time since this had happened. What's up? Someone said to him. And when he turned, his face was relaxed. It's a gun moldy. He put the bread in the rubbish where he could reach it again. When the others were gone, Morley took the bread out and pulled it apart. From its crumbs, he drew a tube, a gray baton that fit thickly in his hand. The line of a seal was just visible at the end. Morley did not open it. He turned it over. There were instructions on it in small type, embossed as if punched out from within. Concealed by rubbish bin at easternmost exit, St. James Park, it said. ASAP, YWBC. Morley turned it over. He felt the crack of its opening and the larger, more ragged mark he had made. The mar made him anxious. He packaged it tightly in a hard cardboard tube. Walking to the park, he clutched the cylinder until he realized how he must look, and he turned idly to see who, if anyone, was watching him. He relaxed his grip on the tube until he thought perhaps it was too much and that someone might now be able to snatch it. He reached the gate with relief and paused, fussed ostentatiously with his newspaper, put down the tube, and tucked it up to the bin with his foot before walking away. The next day, he completed the evaluations he was working on. Morley ate lunch out, and when he headed for home, he stopped and bought two new hardbacks, 
He had ice cream in a cinema cafe until the next showing of a film, which he sat through until the end of the final credits. He ate at a pizzeria sitting outside, reading one of his new books, but nothing did any good. Through it all, he never stopped waiting. He imagined the park wardens, the dustmen becoming intrigued by the cardboard tube, looking to see that they were not watched and then taking it from the piles they collected. He imagined them opening his package, unscrewing that gray rod and drawing out whatever it was he had been charged to deliver. He should be calmer, he knew, but it had been so many months since he had last had to do any of this. Finally, two days later, when he thought it must have arrived wherever it was going, he felt relief. He pushed his life back into its usual shape quickly. Though he knew this could not be the last of it, he was pleased that he had not obsessed as he sometimes did, that he had lost only two days to his duty. Early on, it had been more. He was so successful that when he at last received another instruction, it came as a shock. October, and Morley was enjoying London's autumn smell. At a newsstand, he picked up a copy of The Standard and hesitated by the chocolate, looking for the low-fat version he had trained himself to pretend he liked, but suddenly hungry for a real bar, took and paid for with a guilty devil-may-care attitude. He unwrapped it as he walked. The first bite he swallowed, but it was on the second bite that his teeth touched something hard. He gasped and came to a halt, staring into the wet, melting sweet at something much darker and more cold inside. He stared at the chocolate and thought, but I was just about to take another one. It had been a long time since he had dwelled on this phenomenon. He had thought himself inured to his instructor's unerring knowledge of what he would pick. In the first months, he had been constantly aghast at the fact had imagined unseen cadres watching him, gauging what he was about to buy, somehow pushing their messages into things just before he touched them. But that was impossible. The inserts were already there, waiting for him. Morley, always knowing that it was useless, had attempted to trick those who contacted him. In shops, he would hover for many seconds, his hand over a specific item. He would pick it up, walk on, then suddenly return and grab a replacement. It made no difference. For weeks and months at a time, his shopping was untouched, but when they wanted to pass on a command, he could not evade them. Twice now, obscurely shaped, opaque containers were delivered in products he knew he had taken quickly and at random. The last in a jar of mayonnaise threaded through a pack of dustbin liners. Once, Morley had spent days living only off translucent products, holding each glass or plastic container up to the light to see it was uncontaminated by commands before buying them. But he had been too hungry to continue like that for long. The chocolate contained something like a fat pen lid. Thankfully, Morley had not bitten it. Leave this on your seat on the last southbound Victoria Line train between Pimlico and Vauxhall, it said. ASAP, YWBC. Morley stared at the order and hated it. This time, when he obeyed it, he did not try to distract himself. With something between resentment and self-indulgence, he let himself think only of his task and of what might go wrong. 
From the station at Vauxhall, he went straight home and drew a chart of all the places the little package might be intercepted. He ranked them in order of potential danger. The next day, and the day after that, he called in sick and spent the entire day watching the news. Police intercepted a bomb in Syria. Greek doctors saved the lives of twins. A strike by baggage handlers in Paris was averted. A serial sex offender was caught in Berlin. It might be any of these, Morley thought as he stared at the screen, at these and other stories, and tried to read some secret nod in the reporter's words. Of course, his actions might have their effects in the work of hidden agencies, which measured their successes precisely in stories that no one would ever hear. Morley knew that. He also knew that what he forwarded might have no effect at all on anything. He did not believe it, but he knew it might be. This must be important work. He had long ago decided that was the only thing that made sense. It was what had first changed his opinion of his tasks, had turned his paranoia, his fear, into something like pride. The truth was that it was not just the tedium of clear soups and water or white wine that had aborted his experiment with see-through goods. It was also a growing sense of anxiety, a fear that he was succeeding, or perhaps that he was missing messages, and that he must not, because important things depended on him doing the duty given him. He had never believed that the insertions were everywhere, that everyone received them randomly, but that no one ever said a word. He had been chosen, for opaque reasons, to be the middleman. Whoever was contacting him must need anonymity, a certainty that they were not being traced. Hence this subterfuge, entrusting their deliveries to a stranger. Morley had been watched for years, since he was a boy. It was the only thing that made sense. They must have had to make sure he was suitable at first, that he would not fail, that his curiosity would not goad him to open the little containers and let their contents get into the wrong hands, into his hands. Then, a few days on, there had been another little gray baton in his bread. Concealed by rubbish bin at easternmost exit, St. James Park, it said again. ASAP, YWBC. Morley was horrified. He had never had an instruction repeated before. He winced at its corrective tone. Thankfully, this time, he had not cut the insert. There is a bread knife mark, he thought. Twice my teeth dented the thing. There is that one I dropped and chipped. They must know it's a risk, he thought, reiterating arguments he had had with himself many times. They wouldn't put it where it could be scratched like that if it mattered. Probably, this had nothing to do with that. Still, he imagined whoever had received it examining the first tubular casing, touching the blemish, throwing it away unopened, unsure if they could trust it. The thing the key had contained might not be used, and that might be what lost the battle. He obeyed quickly this time. But out of that reawakened anxiety came others. Watching the news stories, wondering in which braveries or tragedies he had played a tiny part, Morley felt a resurgence of another fear, that those messages he had missed, if he had missed any in the years he had tried to escape the instructions, had been crucial to some sort of long-term plan, that everything he did now was in vain, too late, 
and that deserted in some landfill somewhere, discarded years ago by some confused consumer in its place, was the small dark box embossed with instructions which he, Morley, had been supposed to obey, a box that had been key to all these other, later packages, which were now pointless. Throughout his life, as an occasional courier of messages in his milk, his vegetables, his CDs, in hollows cut in the pages of his books, squeezed from toothpaste tubes, Morley had not speculated much on the hidden items themselves. For much of the time, he had just assumed, vaguely, that they must be instructions, messages that could not be trusted to phone lines or email, rolled in protective carapaces. The small hard thing in his chocolate had resembled nothing so much as a bullet. He thought of that as he watched footage of an assassination, the death of a strongman president in an ex-Soviet republic shot once by a sniper. The murdered man was huge and did not look quite human. It may have taken a special weapon to end him. Morley tried to make sense of the politics of the place. He could not tell if the death of the man had been a good or a bad thing, which at first made him think that the bullet he had passed on, if it had been a bullet, could not have been used for this job, because there was no obvious heroism at play here. But, of course, he was in no position to say either way. Perhaps even if this had been an evil act, the good that it also did necessitated it. Morley knew where these thoughts were going. He had been on this route many times before, back when he had rebelled against his unseen commanders. He knew what he would think next, and though he did not want to, Though he had had this out with himself many times and thought the argument done, he could not stop. He wondered again if perhaps his actions were on behalf of somebody whose agenda he would not share. Something malignant. There was an explosion on an oil rig, an attack on Kurdish villages, rapes in Mexico City. A jockey tested positive for drugs. There was a bloodless coup, and a bloody intervention. Morley saw the little bullet, or bullet-shaped thing, or tightly folded instructions in a bullet-like case, held in the hand of the horse rider or the doctor whose test discredited him, in the pocket of the African general who took power promising peace, in the gun belt of the mercenary whose forces invaded the capital. He knew also that these items and the others that preceded them might be nowhere he would ever see, they could be hidden along with the orders they must have contained for those higher up than he. Did I do that? Morley thought as he watched the successful docking of a shuttle with Mir. Did I do that? A child smuggling ring broken. That? The torture and murder of a Russian anti-racist. A company excelled. The end of a conflict came, and a new conflict arose. Morley went to sleep an unsung hero but woke in the night, horrified at the knowledge that he was a dupe of criminal stupidity. He became a champion again, and then a pawn, and then an irrelevance. At work, Morley thought of the men and women who issued him his real orders somewhere in their white room or their cave, their satellite. You know all this stuff in Chechnya? Someone said to him in the pub, and he started. Yes, he knew about it. He watched the news, and now he thought constantly about the death squads, the resistance fighters. The person who had spoken was saying something like, they're all as bad as each other, 
and distractedly, Morley was glad to hear that others were intervening and disagreeing, but he was not paying close attention. He hoped that when next he was issued commands, they concerned the Chechnyans, or the South Sudanese. If you could do something about it, someone was saying, but Morley was ahead of her. I can, he thought. Every time he bought anything, he felt his stomach sink in case there was an instruction, yet he was still eager. He was afraid that enthusiasm or anxiety would count against him. He was careful not to display any expectation. He picked products from shop shelves firmly without hesitation. But of course, nothing came. For many days, nothing came, and he thought often of his duty and how he would like to do it. A tanker was lost in the North Sea. Livestock was bled dry in Mexico by some goat sucker. Nothing came. Crop circles returned. Diseases took thousands. Corruption brought down banks. Nothing came. When it did, in the end, the instruction was larger than any he had received before. He suspected as much before he had unwrapped his carton. He hefted it up. Deep pan vegetable feast, he read and eyed its thickness. Inside it was a disc, almost an inch thick, the diameter of a small frisbee. It was the same dark gray that most of the others had been, perhaps a little lighter or darker. Morley shook it, but it made no sound. There was a line of text just visible bisecting it where it could be pried apart. Forward to, he read on it, and then a post office box number. ASAP it said. They want me to send it? Morley thought, bewildered, as he kept reading. They've never... He stopped hard as he reached the last line. Thank you for your cooperation. Your work is done. You will be contacted. Yesterday was bad comparison. Yellow wears bad conscience. You'll wear a basket case. Of course not. Of course not. You will be complicit, connected, Collected, conniving, co-opted, collated, concerned. Of course not. You will be contacted. Morley had understood very clearly what YWC meant. Letters he had read on every insert with which he had ever been entrusted until now. He put the disc-like thing on the table, stared at it. For minutes, he stared at it until he knew what it was that he felt horrified and bereft. He should be happy. There was no hint of displeasure in the message. It seemed they were choosing a major task with which to finish his sentence. The job was done. That was the implication. It wasn't that his work was done, but that his work was done, that things were irrevocable now. He supposed he had helped bring in a better world. As he wrapped the canister to put it in a box, though, he thought suddenly... I've been replaced. And he became so enraged that he slammed the thing down. Why have they replaced me? What did I do wrong? In the post office, in the long, long queue, he could not stop staring at a woman three people in front of him. She held a large padded envelope close to her. Abruptly, she let it drop and held it loosely while she looked around, taking in everyone. She drew her hands up again, slowly, the package creeping back towards her chest, and she tried to put it down again and walked briskly and with relief to the service window when it opened. Morley was still. 
The cube became restive, but he did not move. Behind him, an elderly Rastafarian gripped a poster tube in two hands. A young mother fussed with the cardboard box she had put beside her baby in its pushchair. A teenager was picking with what looked like great nervousness at the large wrapped case he held. Excuse me, mate, are you going to... But Morley ignored him, stared at the parcels in the line. I'm surrounded by colleagues, he thought. And then, almost instantly, I'm surrounded by enemies. Men and women from his own organization, or from splinters of that organization. Renegades or opponents dedicated to destroying him. Those who would make things far worse for Chechnya, for the economy. Those whom he must stop. None of them know, he thought. He was the only one who knew that there, in the post office, ignoring each other and filtering out the tiny mutter of a Walkman, glancing at the clock, fidgeting, they were all at war. There must be civilians among them, and they were in danger too. Innocent people could get hurt. Careful now. Be careful. Morley swallowed. He closed his eyes. I'm losing it. Mate, excuse me, but the queue's moving. Uh, go on, mate. What am I doing? It was sudden, a landslide of certainty. Seeing all his hidden enemies, or comrades, or random strangers, Morley could not believe he had been taken in, that he had been suckered by the implied do-gooding of his overseers, these skulking contaminators. He was aghast. He thought of the years he had done their work, and of each message or item or weapon or computer code he had passed on. As rage grew in him and disgust for his foolishness, a fervor came, too, to fix the bad he had done. He could hardly imagine what he must have been party to, the flies on corpses, the slumps that wiped economies away and left people raging in the streets. Mate. But Morley was out and running pushing through the lines, holding his terrible package close, as if he could shield everyone else from it. No, he thought. No. He held the disc over the waters of the canal. He held it by a skip full of rubbish, by a bonfire on the allotments. But at last he took it back to his house and placed it on his table, a baleful centerpiece. I won't be part of it anymore, Morley thought. Fuck you, he said to himself, staring at the container. He put a potted plant on it, trying to make it banal. That night, when his phone rang, Morley was horrified but not so surprised to hear the curt message, the voice so clipped he could not even tell the sex or age of the speaker. Is this? It said, and then a gasp, a contained sound, and then, You're just bloody asking for trouble, ain't you? And there was laughing, and then the line cut. Morley did not leave the house for days. He picked up a knife whenever the phone or the doorbell rang, but that one call seemed to be the end of it. I knew it, he thought, and most of the time believed. I was right about them. They wouldn't threaten me if they were on my, on our side. Nothing came for him. He watched the disc. It sat below the china pot through the weeks of winter into spring. Morley carefully watered the plant. For a time, he flinched when he shopped, 
and then he stopped, as he found nothing in his products. He watched what happened in the world around him, and was as sure as he could that he was not to blame. He was more and more certain that he had done the right thing. By March, he had almost stopped worrying. When he came back to his flat one day to find his window broken and his home trashed, his video and stereo taken, his books thrown to the floor, he even fleetingly thought that it was just a burglary. But it did not take him long to trace the footsteps of the intruder, to see how they had hurried from room to room as if they had been looking for something. They had been interrupted, it seemed, had not spent long in the kitchen. The disc was untouched, fringed by the leaves that now half hid it. They would not have expected it to be there. Morley felt the raised instructions again and sat on the floor. The police were sympathetic. They made it clear that he should not expect too much. I expect nothing, he thought. You can't track the likes of these. You're no good to me at all. They want me. Is there, is it, is it like most other break-ins? He could not restrain himself from asking, and the liaison officer nodded and watched him carefully. Uh, yes, it's, he moved his lips. Uh, sometimes people find this sort of thing very upsetting. Uh, would you like me to, I can put you in touch with someone to chat about it, a uh, counselor? Morley almost laughed at the man's misdirected kindness. You can't help me, he thought. No one can. He wondered what would happen, what the penalty was for renegacy. I don't regret it, he thought fiercely. I'd do it again. I won't courier for them anymore, no matter what they do to me. When the policeman phoned him some days later, it took Morley several seconds to understand what he was saying. The message was so unexpected. We've got him. Morley could not understand how the operatives could have been so careless. A botched job, a rush, the incompetence of some new agent, he could not understand it. They were caught selling this stuff, he kept saying. Yeah, the officer said. They sat in the police station canteen. Junkies, they know they should use a fence and all that, but, you know. He waggled his eyebrows to indicate that it was difficult to care when you were high. Morley wanted to see him, this so-called junkie they had caught. But he was not allowed even to peer through the grill of the cell. His heart was hard in his throat. He thought of the man in that little room, impassive, wearing nondescript, forgettable clothes, waiting for the police to receive a message from some astonishing lawyer or government minister and to let him go, or for a midnight visitor to free him in some effortlessly daring raid. Morley imagined him a big man, but not so big as he was slow, with a face that showed no emotion at all, nor purpose. Morley did not know if he could bear to see the face of his designated punisher. Why did you get caught? It did not take much to find out the supposed name of the man the police were holding. A word to a few of the officers he had dealt with, and he learned when the suspect would be released, soon to be rearrested, he was assured. Immediately, they could find a fingerprint or DNA, they said. They would be coming to dust again. Morley wasn't to worry, they said. Morley could still not believe what he was going to do, but he could not live this way anymore. He waited as the day went and grew more and more frightened. 
He did not give the thought words, but he knew that this might be his final day. How will I recognize him, he thought, and then suddenly remembered the photograph the desk clerk had showed him. Those things aren't accurate. The photograph made him look, I don't know. He considered the way the man would walk, ignorable, invisible, forgettable, and all full of power. I have to be very careful, Morley thought again. I'm going to see one of them, he thought, any minute. When the man left the police station, Morley felt as if he could not breathe. It was late. He tracked the man quietly towards spiraling estates that seemed empty. The man's disguise was consummate. His furtive movements, his anxious little tics, perfect. Morley hung back, but as he saw his target stop by a stairwell in the shadows of some industrial bins lighting a cigarette, he was overcome. He had thought he was only there to track, but now he ran forward in fear and anger and wondered as he approached if this had always been meant to happen. Morley was sobbing as he attacked. He knew he could not give his target a moment to prepare. Who are you? he whispered through the scarf around his face. You leave me the fuck alone. He gasped. He sucked in breath, gripped the man's throat, and barreled him down to the ground. His hands were shaking. Just who the fuck are you? he croaked. The man he held was whining like a child. Morley pushed his face into concrete. Shut up, shut up. You aren't fooling anyone. You understand me? He jabbed. Tell me, what the hell do you want from me? He stretched out his arms hard, trying to keep distance from the man on the ground. The burglar was crying. Desperately, Morley kicked him, hard. Tell me, he said. Was it you I done? The man whimpered. I didn't mean nothing, man. It didn't mean nothing. Please don't hurt me. Urgently, Morley watched the man's arms, his legs, ready for an attack. His quarry was thin, and his face was scabbed. It was hard to make sense of his expression. For a moment, Morley saw a calculation on the man's face, and he opened his own eyes aghast, but just as quickly, the expression was gone, and he was left unsure. Who are you? Morley yelled again, as the man, the young man, flapped his bloody hand in defense. I, I ain't nothing, he gasped, and Morley watched him, and suddenly understood and came in close. What did they tell you? He said urgently. I'll make sure you're safe. Whatever they threaten you with, I can, we can, the police can protect you. Who were they? The ones who told you to break in. What did they want? But as he shook the man and hurt him badly, Morley could not make him talk. He could only cry, holding up his limp arms. And at last, Morley had to throw him down and run, leaving the young burglar howling and tearing at himself with tension and frustration. The man was a flawless actor, or was certainly well chosen by the hidden agency, for both his ignorance and expendability. Either that, or he was too terrified to speak. Or perhaps, Morley thought, the police had the wrong man. Morley cleaned his flat, took the plants off the disc. He heard no more from the police. When he heard about the poison gas attack, he sat staring at the heavy circle, the evidence of his mutiny. 
On the screen, rescuers in chemical suits dragged young men and women out of the subway. Most were dead. Some were still dying, noisily drowning on their own deliquescent lungs. Morley watched. Their families mobbed the site, broke through the cordons, were held back by police and by gusts of gas, braved them, reached their dead lovers and family with their eyes streaming from more than grief. Some succumbed. Simultaneous attacks in other parts of the city. And Morley heard what the journalists heard. The screams and foreign entreaties, in places of worship, in the offices of giant companies, and in the subway, gas made innumerable hells. Several devices were found and diffused before they were triggered. Even more had been supposed to die than the hundreds who did. A coalition of armies was amassed. There was an onslaught on the poisoner's refuge. Morley watched the conflict. When his prime minister appeared, came onto his screen to ask for Morley's and his compatriots' support, Morley could only focus on the bookshelves behind the leader. Amid the spines were tasteful statuettes, a couple of plaques, and there at the prime minister's right hand, an empty space. What looked like a deliberate gap, what looked like a stand for something. Something circular, something the size of the disc that had propped up Morley's flowers. Morley felt as if he were choking. A message, he thought. They're saying, see what we're missing? If I'd sent it on, they would have it, and they might have stopped this. It was too late to send it now. Morley was stricken. He saw photographs of the hideouts from which the masterminds of the attack had fled. And above in an alcove were two saucer-shaped things, covered with writing, and again a space for a third. It could have, maybe it might have been even worse, Morley thought then, and his heart surged while misery lifted. Oh, thank God, that was it. It would have been even worse if I had not held this back from them. He stared again at his container, but did not remain fully convinced. Is it too late? I'll send it. I could still send it. But he did not want to make things worse. Morley felt that the guilt would destroy him. It did not stop, and he stared and stared at the tiny address on the container. Once he took a knife to it, almost opened it, but he stopped. He could not risk making things worse. I might make it better, he whispered. Your work is done, it said to him, every time he looked at it there on the shelf. Your work is done. But it was not, and it would never be. Your work meant nothing, it said. Then, you never had any work. Perhaps it was too late. Perhaps it would make no difference. Perhaps he could end it all. His burden bent him. There is no burden, he heard and ignored. You have no work to do. Your work was always done. Outside moved many people carrying parcels. Morley held the disc and watched the war that he had started or contained or had never affected 
at all. When the moon is a counterfeit, better find the one that fits. Better find the one that lights the way for you. When the road is full of nails, garbage pails, and darkened jails, and the tons are full of heartless tales that drain on you. Who would ever notice you? Fade into a shaded room. Tell me that it's nobody's fault, nobody's fault, but my own. Tell me that it's nobody's fault, nobody's fault, but my own. Tell me that it's nobody's fault. Nobody's fault but my own. Tell me that it's nobody's fault. Nobody's fault but my own. And that was our story. Classic Hitchcockian MacGuffin there, as reliable as a mysterious Monday morning bread cylinder. And speaking of reliable, let's close things out with our 100-character story winner this week by Tired Guy from our forums. Here it goes. The pot calls the kettle black, and he calls the spatula Gary. The pot hates Gary and has plans to murder his whole family. Good stuff. 100 characters, no more, no less. Find the Twabble section in our discussion forums at forums.travelcast.org. You can post it there, and we might pick yours to be next week's winner. We post them early on Twitter and social media each week. Follow us there at Drabblecast. Remember, folks, that the Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't chain it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. And please do feel free to do so, because that's how we do this. We spread the word, we give free fiction out to the masses, and hopefully you'll donate to us to support us. And that's another thing. Support the Drabblecast if you enjoyed our show this week. Go to drabblecast.org. That's our website. If, I mean, if... I don't know what else it could be. Go there and find the support option up there at the top. You can support the Drabblecast at any amount, $5, $10 a month, which gives you access to Drabblecast B-sides, or more. I don't know. This whole thing is based on your support, folks, and we do appreciate any help you can give. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Treblecast art director Bo Kyer. Are you sick of Bo Kyer yet? I mean, you should be. He's classified by the CDC as a brain fungus transferable by prolonged ocular exposure. So, I mean, what the heck is exposure? I mean, what the... You know, follow your instincts there, folks. Spore more art from him at Bo Kyer on Instagram. Our program this week was brought to you by Melissa Henderson, Jason Smith, Adam Pratt, Sandra O'Dell, a fortune cookie with the exact fortune of a cookie in your very hands. Zimmerman Bloodsoe, Samantha Henderson, Bokeyer, and yours truly, Norm Sherman. 
reminding you to push the play button. Uh, Jeff Bezos, yes, the richest man in the world announced he was splitting from his wife. Can you imagine how obnoxious you have to be when somebody doesn't want to be married to you even though you're worth more than $100 billion? <laughs> in their statement, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bezos say they're parting as friends and that even if they knew that it would end in divorce 25 years ago, they would still have gotten married. That's very sweet. Uh, it is. Jeff Bezos, of course, credits his wife for all the love and support he received over the decades, and Mackenzie Bezos ended up with $65 billion. Yeah, which means she can go to Whole Foods twice. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't she get some kind of uh, discount since she owns it? No, I don't think he loves that. Now, this announcement seems to have come out of nowhere, but then the National Enquirer unveiled this investigative report. They said they had been following Bezos around for six months. They found out he was having an affair. They even found love notes he wrote to his uh, girlfriend. Uh, hey, since you looked at my face, you might also like what's in my pants. <laughs> He owns Amazon, you see. So, uh, <laughs> oh, now, I see. <laughs> the, the, the Inquirer actually did reveal the actual texts he allegedly sent to his mistress, and they're a little, little odd. Uh, Chioki, can you read a couple? These are all real. I want to smell you. <laughs> I will show you with my body and my lips and my eyes very soon. I love you, alive girl. <laughs> It's a live girl that really gets you. You really does. You can see why he was so entranced by her. She's alive. Did he write those or did he just say, uh, Alexa, send some sexts? 